Chapter 7 of The Fortune Hunter, a novel of New York Society by Anna Cora Mawit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly S. Taylor. O joyful heart, exult not so, mistrust that prospect fair. It is the lure of death and woe, the ambush of despair. Epps Sargent. There is a happiness communicated by the presence of the happy. Our own faces spontaneously reflect the sunshine of the faces before us. Our own hearts irresistibly echo the clear, joyous tones that burst from the lips to which we are listening. So thought Rachel as she sat in Aria's little chamber looked into Aria's beaming countenance and responded to the sprightly remarks for which the most trifling circumstances seemed to give occasion. "'Shall our friendship be less strong?' asked Rachel after a moment's silence. "'When you are a wife, Aria?' "'Not unless matrimony unnaturally contracts my heart instead of expanding it as it would naturally do.' "'And you have determined to marry young Chadwick?' With your gracious permission, returned Aria, bowing in mock submission, but your uncle has not yet given his consent, nor withheld it, for it has not yet been asked. I wished Edgar to talk with him when he is in a mood to give and forgive, but no favorable opportunity has yet offered itself. Do you not feel some anxiety? Not in the least. The worst thing to take on interest is trouble. Do you not remember that Shakespeare says cowards die many times before their death? So the anticipator of evil is afflicted with a thousand evils that herald the one he dreaded. That is a very happy philosophy. But I have a question to ask you. How can you, with your peculiar and confirmed religious views, marry a man whose ideas on such subjects are so unsettled as Edgar Chadwick's. He has no fixed belief even in the existence of a supreme being or in the immortality of the soul and its future happiness or misery. But he has in his own soul the rich soil in which the seed may be planted, and I would marry him to turn sower. What greater happiness can I have than in that of convincing his reason of the holy truths in which I myself believe. You follow the doctrine of St. Paul, then, in that a good wife sanctifieth her husband. If she sanctifies him, it is in engrafting her goodness upon him, and by making him a participator of it through his sympathy with her, you have sometimes heard me speak of the influence of one person's fear upon another person. I have reason to think that when a being loves God, and therefore earnestly desires to become pure and perfect as he is, that being, if he also loves mankind, the good for their goodness, the evil, that he may turn them to goodness, carries about him a sphere of love which affects and softens the heart of those with whom he communicates, that we are encircled by a spiritual sphere, through the medium of which we affect others, 
has become the belief of many wise and great men. Have you never yourself, in the presence of some individuals, felt a sensation of inward cold and depression, as though your faculties were all paralyzed, accompanied sometimes with a feeling of inexplicable repugnance? And have you not, in the presence of others, felt your heart grow warm, as though it were alive to every impression, while at the same time your spirits had free play? I may not have experienced precisely the sensation you described, although I have often felt ill at ease and constrained in every movement in the society of some strangers, while I could converse freely and take pleasure in the presence of others, and this without being able to account for in my own emotion. The presence of those I love always communicates pleasure, if they are pleased and pain, if they are suffering. But to return to the subject of Mr. Chadwood, he is certainly a very moral young man, and perhaps you think morality is sufficient. Excellent, but not sufficient. To be truly good, he must neither break moral or divine laws, and from that, from love of goodness, which is from love of God, and to love God, he must know him and have communion with him in spirit. If he performs a good act through the love of display to obtain a reward, or to win praise, or for any other consideration than because it is pleasing to heaven and in his own soul, the act is not pure, because there is impurity in the motive. If a man, through morality, abstained from evil, would you not call him good, although he is denied the existence of a god? He may abstain from committing evil deeds from the fear of losing his reputation or from the dread of the consequences to himself, and in such case there would be no virtue in his motives, therefore none in his act. If he committed a sin in thought, although he dared not commit that sin in deed, he would be equally guilty in the sight of heaven which judges the action of the spirit rather than those of the body. But if he abstained from sin for the fear of injuring others, or because he felt it to be a crime, he might not acknowledge God openly, but internally he must have acknowledged him since he kept his commandment. So it is with Edward Chadwick. His mind appears to me purer for the love of purity, and though the existence of the deity has never proved to him, and therefore he does not believe it, he is in a state of reception, and will not close his eyes upon the truth when it is presented to him. He will thoroughly investigate, and to investigate is to believe. Therefore it is that I do not fear to become his wife, and that I look forward to promoting his happiness in the one way through which it can alone be ensured. I myself have enjoyed the advantages to which he has been a stranger, and to them I am indebted for the inestimable blessings of faith. I am afraid I have evinced but little humility in all that I have just said, and if you condemn me, you will condemn me justly. But prosperity and happiness make us... Aria! Aria Walton! broke in the harsh voice of Mrs. Lemming. Aria started up and ran to obey the summons. "'Come down here, Miss Aria,' called out Mrs. Lemming from the foot of the stairs. "'Dr. Chadwick desires to see you.' "'I will come immediately,' replied Aria, re-entering the chamber. "'What can Dr. Chadwick possibly have to say to me?' "'Did you ever see such a foolish girl, Rachel?' 
what will you think has become of my boasted philosophy when you see me so excited without a shadow of a cause we good preachers are after all bad practicers make yourself at home until i come back i am sure the doctor will pronounce me to have been seized with a scarlet fever for my fingers have grown red look out for the patient aria hastened to the parlor when she entered she found mr lemming standing near the door apparently about to leave the room he had paused to say a few more words to dr chadwick who was sitting near the window with the head of his cane pressed against his lips and his eyes bent upon the ground aria remarked with surprise the solemn even stern expression of lemming's habitually mild and benevolent countenance two crimson spots burnt brightly on his hollow cheeks which were generally overspread with the parlor of thought and study his eyes were bright and restless the long silvery locks that usually waved smoothly around his high forehead stood up in tangled masses as though his agitated fingers had been unconsciously hurried through them the seldom ruffled serenity of his mien had given way to an air of excited indignation when his eye rested on aria he seized her hand and grasping it convulsively with his own whispered god give you strength my child let not all the lessons i have taught you be in vain he bent toward her hurriedly kissed her forehead and left the room before aria had time to reflect on the strangeness of his manner dr chadwick arose and courteously saluting aria led her to a seat this perfect composure and the gallant suavity of his manners quickly reassured her and she entered into the conversation with her usual graceful ease the doctor at first answered somewhat abstractly but after a few moments he drew his chair closer to her once more applied his cane thoughtfully to his mouth took her hand looked at her with parental tenderness and clearing his throat as if he were afraid his words would not be distinct addressed her my dear miss walton ahem, my dear young lady ahem, i have something very particular to communicate that is to consult you to talk with you about this morning aria smilingly expressed her readiness to listen to him my dear young lady i presume you are aware of that is to say you have suspected or have been apprised of him of the fancy the penchant as the french call it the penchant of which my son entertains for you dr chadwick cleared his throat as he finished uttering these words with more strength success and evident satisfaction than had attended any of his previous attempts the rosy blood mantled over aria's cheeks one moment her dark eyes were veiled by their darker lashes the next they were raised confidingly to the doctor's face that look was sufficient to answer his question it almost discomposed the doctor and would have shaken his purpose had that purpose been less firm but he steeled his heart and continued with less deliberation my dear miss aria i must consider myself duty-bound to give you a fair statement of the case my son is a young man a very young man and hardly knows his own mind on any subject he has had no experience in the world and does not know what it is to struggle through it you are in the same condition 
it is my opinion that two young persons uniting themselves under these circumstances will have many trials to undergo which you are neither of you calculated to sustain dr chadwick paused as though he half expected aria would divine his meaning and answer with dignity that she would never marry a man against the consent of his parents he was mistaken however for her tone was full of affectionate gratitude as she answered you are very good to think of these things but we have thought of them too and on my account you need have no uneasiness i can endure privations and hardships i should not consider any trial too formidable by the side of edgar but it is not on your account only returned dr chadwick rather warmly do you not suppose that i have some consideration for the happiness of my son do you not suppose that i wish to see him fighting all his days with poverty getting the worst of the battle in the end because he is encumbered by a wife in the same situation as himself aria looked aghast and her lip quivered so violently that it impeded her utterance she could with difficulty reply but if he is content that is not enough my dear young lady not by any means enough i hope you will hear me calmly for i have only one word to say which is that there is an insurmountable barrier to your union with my son can poverty be so insurmountable a barrier replied aria with more calmness he would not does not think so i do not and therefore i have pledged him my hand which i cannot withdraw unless it is his wish and much as i would ever lament your opposition to our union it depends upon your son not on me whether or not that union ever takes place but it is not the only matter and the most insurmountable barrier there is another greater one that can never be surmounted exclaimed dr chadwick incensed by the quiet dignity of aria's reply to a degree which banished his usual soft tone and gracious manner another barrier what what other can there be miss walton i am sorry that you have forced me to make this explanation i hope to avoid it that is i desired to spare your feelings but if you insist on knowing if you feel yourself prepared to hear i am please be frank and explicit with me i entreat replied aria fearfully moved by the dark forebodings that shot through her mind then miss walton my dear young lady the doctor took her hand again but its icy coolness must have chilled him for he instantly relinquished it my dear miss aria you are too young to know much of the world but you are probably aware that families of a certain standing usually desire to connect themselves with others of the same standing an expression of relief passed over aria's feature and she bowed her head in token that she understood that is to say miss walton continued the doctor they would think it necessary that there should be no stain on the reputation of the family with which they connected themselves aria started violently and grasping the doctor's arm gasped forth on mine no no there is not say there is none on mine 
be calm. My dear young lady, I earnestly entreat you will be calm. As you must hear what I am about to say, one day or other, I suppose it is quite as well that you should hear it now. But be calm, pray, be calm. I am, I am, go on, but be sure you are quite certain of what you say. Do not speak upon suspicion, do not for the love of heaven. It is only on suspicion, my dear, that I can speak, but that suspicion is so strong that it amounts to a certainty. You are called the niece of Mr. Mordaunt. I have known his family since he was a child. It is almost impossible that you should be so, at least, his legitimate niece. He was left early an orphan, and had but one sister and a brother, both of whom died when they were quite young, and died unmarried. If you were the child of either of them, you were— Spare me, spare me! Do not say that I was a child of shame. Leave me the memory of my parents to love. Mother, the image that I pictured in my mind of you— the image I have dwelt upon and love that has visited me in sleep, that was ever before me waking. No, no, you wrong her. My mother could never have been. Her child could never have cause to blush at her memory. Calm yourself, my dear young lady. You are dreadfully overcome. You will make yourself ill. Tell me what grounds you have for this suspicion, questioned Aria, inspired by a momentary feeling of hope. I have already given you sufficient grounds, but it is not my opinion that you are really the niece of Mr. Mordaunt. Your resemblance to him is so strong that it is generally supposed that you are his child. His child? Father! Might I then call him father? Might I love him as a father? I, who have never known a father's tenderness, I have a father? Arya was so engrossed with having at length discovered what she had from childhood desired to know, discovered that there was a being on earth whom she might call parent, and so much tenderness awakened at this thought that she almost forgot her sorrows. When Dr. Chadwick next addressed her, it was in his softest and most conciliatory tone. "'You see now, my dear, how great is the barrier between yourself and my son.' I shall always esteem you and desire your welfare as I would that of a daughter, but you see how impossible it is that either his mother or myself should think of your union. Yes, yes, quite, quite impossible. He could not wed the child of guilt and shame. Of guilt, of shame. Oh, am I? Can I be the sh child of shame? No, no, oh, no! She buried her face in her hands and bowed her head in an agony of tearless grief. Her frame was convulsed with strong emotion, and the cold dew burst in large drops through the fingers that were clasped against her forehead. Dr. Chadwick thought it advisable to maintain silence, until Aria gradually became calmer. Soon her limbs no longer shook, but they grew cold and rigid. She lifted her head, but when her face was uncovered, not a vestige of blood shone through the transparent skin. It is inevitable, and I must endure it, thought she. I have but one hope. 
I will see my uncle, father. Can he be my father? There must be no more concealment. With God's help, I can now bear anything. She turned to Dr. Chadwick and said, I know that it has wounded you to give me pain, but I am strong, quite strong. I can bear a great deal, therefore do not grieve for me. Do not tell Edgar that I suffered. Henceforth I must be nothing to him. I have been a source of pleasure. I should be almost happy if I thought I should not now be one of pain. Do not trouble yourself on his account, my dear young lady. I hope he will bear these little contretemps like a man. Life is full of them. Now that I see you composed again, I may ask, will you grant me one request? Anything in my power, replied Arya, with almost an unnatural calmness. You must promise not to mention this interview to my son. Do not state your motive for refusing to unite yourself to him. Of course the refusal must come from you, and tell him there is no possibility of your ever changing your mind. I have particular reasons for making this request. You will confer a great favor upon me by granting it. I have your promise. If, after seeing my, my, Mr. Mordaunt, I find that the barrier does exist, then you have, replied Aria firmly. That is sufficient. Of its existence, I have satisfied myself. I beg your pardon. I did not intend to agitate you. We get accustomed to these things after living a while in the world, my dear, and the custom is second nature. I must leave you now. Keep yourself calm. Good morning. Aria returned the salutation like one in a dream. Dr. Chadwick walked out of the room without venturing to look back. She remained standing, incapable of action, in the position in which he left her. At length a step on the stairs aroused her. Quietly she passed out of the parlor, ascended the stairs, unconscious of the presence of Mrs. Lemming, who looked after her in wrathful astonishment. But Aria entered her own chamber, seated herself on her favorite little bench, and mechanically took up her work which had fallen beside it. "'My dear Aria!' exclaimed Rachel in consternation. What can have happened? You are as pale as a ghost. Aria looked up, but her features neither expressed surprise, nor pleasure, nor pain at the sight of her friend. Have you waited for me this long, long while, Rachel? Are you not tired? You have not been gone long, my best, dearest Aria. But tell me, what has happened? What ails you? You are so fearfully changed. You look like a ghost, and your hands are colder than marble. Will you not tell me? Not now. Not yet. But could I comfort you? No. There is but one who can give me comfort. And that one is Edgar? Oh, how I wish he were here! Aria shuddered involuntarily. No, not Edgar. Do not speak of him. I will tell you, but not now. Soon, soon but not yet. Some heavy affliction weighs you down, beloved Aria. How icy cold you look. Why do you not weep? It would do you good. I wish I could see you shed one tear. I cannot. It will soon pass away. Do not let it make you unhappy. You see how easily I am moved. You thought me wiser, did you not? 
I shall be so soon, and stronger, too. She tried to look hopeful as she spoke, but her features were too much accustomed to be the fateful index of her soul, for them to obey her will. "'Only tell me what I can do for you,' said Rachel. "'You can only leave me—forgive me, I have grown rude, have I not? You are so kind. Do not think me ungrateful. I shall be better alone. I am recovering already.' Rachel thought it best to obey, and, tying on her hat, for the first time she left her friend, oppressed by a grief too great for even her elasticity of spirits to throw off. End of chapter 7